Now we come today, friends, to the 17th chapter of the book of Proverbs, and we put in here at this, I think, very wonderful chapter, and we move rather rapidly through the last one, and we probably will pick up just a little tempo from now on. And we find ourselves here in chapter 17, verse 1, back again with that which we've heard before, back in chapter 15. It says, "...better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife." And I would say that the activity does not always denote the working of God. All of this organization today and the many meetings that we have and the many organizations, they actually cause a great deal, I think, of confusion and they cause a great deal of frustration. And this is a wonderful proverb that fits in, "...better's a dry morsel in quietness therewith than a house full of sacrifices with strife." And I think of Elijah in this connection. You remember he was in the court of Ahab and Jezebel. And I want to tell you, things were going on there. In fact, religious things, but nothing that really pertained to God at all. And this man Elijah walks in and says, It's not going to rain until I say so. And he says, And I'm not in a mood of saying so. And he walked out. And where did he go to? He went way over and got by the brook Kirith. And he was there for a long period of time. God was training him out there in that desert. Better is a dry morsel in quietness therewith. God took Moses out of that palace of Pharaoh, and it was a scene of activity and religion again. But God put him way out on the desert of Midian. And God had to teach him there. In fact, God had to tell him, you know, I remember as a boy, I came in the house, and we had company. My mother told me, she says, take off your cap. Hmm. I didn't know, you know, you took off your cap because there were ladies present, but I took off my cap there because I was told that's what little gentlemen did. You probably have heard the definition of a gentleman. A gentleman is one who never strikes a woman with his hat on. And I was taught to take my hat off. Well, in those days, they wore the hat inside the house, but they took off their shoes. And Moses didn't know about taking off his shoes. God says, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. We're out there in the desert. God taught him his manners. <laughs> and it's nice to get off at times and be by yourself. My wife and I, you know when you're with people, crowds twice a day in conferences, and you're there six days a week, and then on the seventh day you travel from one place to another, generally end in a place and have dinner with folk. We have just enjoyed, when we get home, going nowhere but outside in our patio in the backyard. We just sit down and enjoy each other. In fact, the matter is, I kid my wife, and I tell her, I said, come out here and let's sit down together and get acquainted with each other. I said, I've been married to you a long time, and it's time I'm getting acquainted with you. And it's always a good thing to do. So that's what we do. Better is a dry morsel and quietness therewith. God wants us to have times like that, and they're very important for our spiritual lives. Now we have in verse 2, it says, A wise servant shall have rule over a son that causeth shame, and shall have part of the inheritance among the brethren. The whole thought here is this. A servant that is faithful is better than an unfaithful son. A servant that you can have confidence in is better than a son you can't have confidence in. Now, I'm sure that there are many that are like that, you know. Abraham, you remember, told the Lord, he says, Eliezer, my servant, has a son, and I want a son. It's much better to have a son. But if the son's not dependable, if he's going to be like David's son that rebelled against him, 
then certainly it's much better to have a good faithful servant. And this man David had several that stayed right with him. Now we have in verse 3 another wonderful proverb. A fining pot is for silver, and the furnace for gold. But Jehovah trieth the hearts. In other words, if you want to get pure silver when you mine it, why, you take it and put it in a fining pot, and the fire's put to it, and it's melted. And you draw off the dross, have the pure silver. The same thing applies to gold. You put it in the furnace, and the dross is drawn off. Now, the Lord puts his servants in the fire, if you please, in order that he might develop something in us. He tries the hearts, that he might strengthen us, make us better sons of his. And God uses those. Now, Peter mentions that in First Peter, the first chapter, and I'm reading verses 6 and 7. "...wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found under praise and honor and glory the appearance of Jesus Christ. God tests you now because you're more precious to him than gold or silver. And God uses that method. God had a purpose in putting Job in the furnace. God had a purpose in giving Paul a thorn in the flesh. God had a purpose in permitting the period of martyrdom that came to the church. Did you know that period molded the church? And the church has never been as rich spiritually as it was during that period. And today, I would say one of the problems that we have among Christians, well, the prophet said it like this, Ephraim waxed fat and kicked. <laughs> what a picture. What a picture today of a lot of fat saints. They have everything. And then they become complainers, fault finders, critics, and that type of a saint. And they're really no help to the cause of Christ at all. So God has to put the ones he's going to use in the furnace in order that he might develop there that which he can use. Now, I shared a letter the lady that's been praying that she might know the Lord Jesus better, that she might grow in grace the knowledge of him. And what did the Lord do? He gave her cancer. Somebody says, well, that's no way to do. That's the way God does it, friends. And you're listening to a preacher today that knows all about it. May I say to you, I know why God did it. <laughs> he did it for a per And he didn't do it because he hated me. And, and that mean letter I got the other day that my wife and I both have cancer because we won't obey God and because we're ignorant and because we're the kind of folk we are. Well, in one way, that's true. But he didn't do it in a mean spirit, the way the letter's written. God did it in a loving way. And you don't know how precious he's become because of that. And I certainly don't wish that for the one who wrote the letter. But I tell you, he certainly needs a little sweetness in his life. Now, let me move on here. Oh, you could get bogged down. These are such wonderful proverbs here. Now, I'm going to move on down to verse 6, because here is one. Oh, it is a great one. And it's one that I'm sure that many of you today appreciate. Children's children are the crown of old men. <laughs> you know who that is? Grandfathers. Children's children are a crown of old men. And the glory of children are their fathers. Now, children look to their fathers. And I've always been grateful for a daughter that always loved and respected her father. And I've always been able to communicate with her. She has the same kind of a temper I have, short fuse. And every now and then, we have a blow-up. And when we have it, I go to her Sometimes she comes to me, and <laughs> we don't even let the sun go down on us. Or I'm not about to, friends. The proverb says, children's children are the crown old men. 
I'm an old man with a grandson, and I could bore you to tears talking to you about him. You heard that story about one old man said to another old man, says, have I ever told you about my grandson and shown you pictures of him? And the other man said, no, you haven't, and I want to thank you for it. But very frankly, if I had known how wonderful grandchildren were, I'd have had them before I had my children, because, oh my, how wonderful they are. Children's children are the crown of old men. Now, will you notice how wonderful this is? This draws families together. A child looks to the father, but the grandfather, he looks back to the grandchild. That's the one that his affection centers in. Now, I want to get through this chapter today. I'll move on down here and come to, well, I think I'm going to go way down here, if you don't mind. Verse 10, a reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. Now, that, by the way, tells you something else. Somebody says, you know, poor Mr. So-and-so, he's a wonderful child of God, and look at the trouble that he's having. Look what's come to him. And may I say to you that God is coaching him because he's a wise man. But what about the fool? Well, even if God put a hundred stripes on his back, it wouldn't do him any good. So maybe the reason that today some are prosperous. You remember the Lord Jesus said about that man, my how prosperous he is. Well, he said, I'm going to tear down the old barns and put up some new ones. I'm expanding. I'm prosperous. And there's nothing wrong with building new barns. The thing that's wrong was he's a fool. Not because I said it. Jesus said, thou fool. <laughs> Why? Because he did nothing about eternity. And if the Lord had chastened him, it wouldn't do him any good at all. During the Great Tribulation, that intense suffering and judgment that the world goes through, many people will suffer so they'll gnaw their own tongue. But do you think they'll turn to God? No, they're not going to turn to God. Why? Well, a hundred stripes on a fool's back doesn't do him better good, friends. And that's my reason for saying again and again, there is a wrong philosophy today about prisons. Prisons are put there for the purpose of developing man and to put them back in society. Now, that may have a place, but that's not the purpose of a prison. It's punishment. Now, it's not discipline. Discipline is for a child, your own child. But punishment is for the one that has committed a crime. we got the wrong notion about these things today. They are closing certain prisons. They've said this in California. Well, no one can be trained and put back into society. Right. Don't think it was built for that purpose. Now, I think that they've become terrible places, and they've become sinkholes of iniquity, but that is not, again, that is not the purpose of them. That's a place of punishment. Now, let's move on. We read here as we move along, now, let me lift out verse 16 here. We read, Wherefore is there a price in the hand of a fool to get wisdom, seeing he hath no heart to it? I know a lot of boys when I was in college, rich fellows, that is, their fathers were, and they shouldn't have been in college. They had no heart for it at all. Seeing he hath no sense, or literally, he has no heart for it. It wasn't that the boys weren't able to pass the courses, but the reason is they didn't want to go. Now, I disagree again. Say, I'm disagreeing a whole lot today. But I disagreed with philosophy today that every person ought to have a college education. Now, I think every person ought to have access to a college education. But I don't think anybody should be forced to go because of the fact that there are a lot of them that do not have the, I think, capacity. Others do not have the heart. The Lord puts it very gently here. They don't have the heart for it. They don't want it. And, frankly, they won't need it for life. It'll not do them a bit of good. There's no purpose in sending certain folk to college. It doesn't do them any good. 
Now, that hasn't anything to do with rich or poor. I think every poor boy that wants to go to college and get an education, that the door ought to be open for him. And I'll tell you why. Because I happened to be a poor boy when I came along, and I thank God for a wonderful Christian elder that got interested in me. And I want to tell you, if it hadn't been for that man, I could never have gone to college. I thank God for the door that was open for a poor boy. Now, I think the door ought to be open, but I think there are a lot of rich boys that ought to be put somewhere else. And I won't tell you where I think they ought to be put. Now, will you notice verse 17 here? It says, "...a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity." Who do you think of now in the Bible? Jonathan. Oh, David had such a wonderful friend in Jonathan. And a friend loveth at all times, not when he's playing in the band in the palace, but when he was out yonder running away from Saul, the father of Jonathan. Even then, he's still a friend of David. Jonathan loved him. What a wonderful thing it is to have a friend. And friends, if he doesn't love you at all times, <laughs> he's not your friend. It's very disappointing in life, isn't it, to find out somebody that's professed to love you, that when the chips were down, you found out they really didn't. They were a Judas Iscariot or an Absalom, that you found out they betrayed you. But this is a wonderful proverb. And then will you notice verse 21, "...he that begetteth a fool doeth it to his sorrow, and the father of a fool hath no joy." It's quite interesting. Again, I come back to this. This has been repeated in different ways several times in Proverbs. The father that has a son that's making good, he'll just talk about him all the time. But if he has a boy that's not making good, why, you don't hear about it. I knew a man in Texas. He had a son that was a great preacher, and that's all he talked about. Now, he had another boy that was one of the finest men I ever met. But you never heard the father mention that fellow at all. He told everybody about that famous preacher's son of his. Well, that's human nature. Verse 22, A merry heart doeth good like a medicine, but a broken spirit drieth the bones. And there are a lot of folk today that are actually sick, and it's heart sick. And it's not heart trouble. It's their heart sick. There's no joy. There's no joy in Mudville today. Mighty Casey is struck out. And that's been true in the lives of a great many Christians. A merry heart. God wants you to have a big time. And I wish that we could think of church as a place to go and have fun. We ought to. You ought to just be able to laugh and rejoice and praise God when you go to church. We're too stiff and stilted today in church. I'm a retired preacher now telling you how to do it, as you can see. That's an abomination to the Lord also. Verse 23, "...a wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment." Bribing, you know. And there's many different ways of bribing, and a great deal of that's going on today. Then verse 28, and this is one with a great deal of humor in it, "...even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise." And he that shutteth his lips is a man of understanding. <laughs> a man had a very simple son, a boy that was not, you know, all there. Over here in Arkansas, a man was a farmer. He took in a load of apples one day, and he left the boy sitting, holding the lines of the team. And he said to the boy, says, Now, don't you say anything to anybody. If you do, they'll find out you're a fool. And so the boy said he wouldn't. And when the father left, a man came up and says, how much are your apples, son? Boy never said a word. The man asked him two or three times. Boy just sat there and looked at him in a stupid way. Finally, the man walked away and he says, what in the world? You act like a fool. And so uh, when the father returned, he said, how did things go? He says, you know, I kept my mouth shut, but they found out I was a fool anyway. Now, if you're in the 18th chapter of the book of Proverbs, I feel like that the young man that entered the school of wisdom is really coming along. I hope the rest of us are coming along with him, because there is a great deal of spiritual truth in these Proverbs. And as I begin now reading at chapter 18, 
Verse 1, "...through desire a man, having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom." Let me change that just a little, and I think it'll be helpful. A man having separated himself for his own pleasure rageth against all sound wisdom. Now, I want to note here that the important thing is the subject of separation. And this is the wrong kind of separation. To tell the truth, there are a great many people that emphasize separation, and I feel they emphasize the wrong kind of separation. They make up their own little commandments are not actually in the Bible, and they feel if they follow them that they should separate themselves from all other believers and that they are something very special in the sight of the Lord. I feel like that's wrong. The great division in the human family is between saved people and lost people. The division as God looks at the world is not color. God is really colorblind. It's not black or white, brown, yellow, red. The division today is, is a man saved or is he lost? Those are the two divisions, and no other division. Now, among those that are saved, there are those that separate themselves into this little clique. They think they're superior. Generally, they're not. They manifest many evidences of the flesh working in their life. But the Bible does tell us to be separate, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. That's in 2 Corinthians six seventeen, And God makes it therefore very clear we're to separate ourselves from that which is unclean. He was talking in particular about idolatry of that day, and that which is immorality, that which is filthy conversation, all of that type of thing would be a separation from that. And that's real segregation. Segregate yourself from the evil. That is something that's very important. Now there's another group, and they are really strong separationists, and they are among actually the unsaved. And we find that that's what he's talking about here, a man having separated himself for his own pleasure. That is, he won't listen to anything that is wise at all. And Jude spoke of them as being apostates. He says in verse 19, "...these be they who separate themselves, sensual, not having the Spirit." You see, what they do is they withdraw from any group of people or any individual that would reprimand them. And they separate themselves into a little group. And they become very obnoxious, actually. They're generally apostates. They separate themselves from the truth. And that's something that we need to note. And they certainly cause a great deal of sorrow in this world. Now we have in verse 2, a fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. This is something we've had before, but this professor I told you, he sent me a bunch of proverbs that are up to date that are very interesting. Here's one that fits in here. If I stop to think before I speak, I won't have to worry afterward about what I said before. Well, that certainly is true. And then in verse 3, "...when the lawless cometh, there cometh also contempt, and with ignominy reproach." They bring great sorrow into the world. In fact, all of these that he mentions through here are like that. And again, let me refer you to a proverb that this professor sent me. He says, "...some persons cause happiness wherever they go." Others, whenever they go. I think that's a good one, by the way, and it sure applies to this crowd that the Lord's talking about here. Now we are told in verse 4, "...the words of a man's mouth are as deep waters, 
and the wellspring of wisdom as a flowing brook. This is something that is very important for the child of God because every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You remember the Lord Jesus stood there that day when all that water was poured out at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. If any man thirst, he said, let him come unto me and drink. He said, he that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly or inmost being shall flow rivers of living waters. Now, John interprets that for us, and he says, this spake he of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that's very important that we speak a child of God should learn to try to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit and how important it is to speak in the power of the Holy Spirit in presenting the Word of God, in talking about the things of God. Now, verse 5, "...it's not good to accept the person of the lawless to overthrow the righteous in judgment. Do not compromise with an evil person or a lawless person in order to overthrow a righteous person. I'm wondering today if we as a nation haven't butted in to many places where we should have kept our nose out and we would not be in the difficulty that we find ourselves. And that's true, of course, of individuals. These are great proverbs that are practical, that can be geared into life. Now he moves down and begins to talk about the fool again. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, don't you call anybody a fool. God does it because he seems to have done a pretty good job of it. He says now here, a fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a whisper are as dainty morsels, and they go down into the depths of the soul. Now, here again you have that matter of a fool that is one that is stirring up contention. He's issuing a complaint. He's finding fault, that type of thing. May I give you another proverb that's a modern one that the professor sent me? Listen to this one. This is a good one. Be considerate. Most people know how to express a complaint, but few utter a gracious compliment. The bee is seldom complimented for making honey. It's just criticized for stinging. <laughs> My friend, that's a good proverb that brings all of this right up to date. Then we want to move on down to verse 10. This is a very wonderful proverb. This is one that many have used in speaking to children. I've used it on several occasions, found it very effective. The name of Jehovah, the name of the Lord, is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Now, that name of Jehovah is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our salvation. He's called Jesus because he'd save his people from their sins. And he's Christ because he's the anointed one, and he's the Lord of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth into it and safe. He says that no one can pluck them out of his hand. What a beautiful picture this is. Now we are told in verse 11, "...the rich man's wealth is his strong city, and has a high wall in his own conceit." Now, the rich man's wealth is a strong city. I'm confident here that the primary meaning is material wealth, because God promised that to his people. But he's not promised that to us. We're blessed with all spiritual lessons. Now, this idea that Israel is just a continuation of the church, and you hear that so much today, even in so-called conservative preaching that the church is, shall I say, the next grade above Judaism. But that's not the picture. You can make a comparison, of course, and there are many likenesses, but the contrasts 
are greater. And here is one of them. God never promised material blessings to the believer. He did to Israel. Promised him a full basket. Promised him material blessings. And God made good at that. Then God said he'd take them away from him as a judgment. Now, today, he's promised us we're blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. And that is our strong city. A child of God needs to be fortified. He needs to get into the strong tower. He needs to be in this strong city. He needs to have the high wall around him. And what is it? Well, it's the Word of God and a knowledge of the Word of God. And that's very important. The thing is that we need to recognize that we're living in very difficult times, and God's people are being tested, and a knowledge of the Word of God is important. Now, not this little smattering that goes around. We're having these little courses that tell you how to witness and how to get along with your wife and stop beating her, and how you can get along with your mother-in-law and things like that. That has a certain value, but it's all surface stuff. It is glamour, and it's for lazy people, you see. Now, there's no substitute for digging in the Word of God. Now, I know I discourage some people when I say that, but friends learn to read the Word of God. And if you don't understand it, read it again. And if you don't understand it the second time, read it the third time. And then if you don't understand it the third time, something is wrong. Then go to the Lord and say, look, something's wrong. I'm not getting it. And ask him to help you. May I say to you, I think I'm accurate because he hasn't let me down in this matter. He'll make good because the Spirit of God is our teacher and how important this is. Now we have in verse 13, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it is folly and a shame unto him. And how many people try to pass judgment on certain individuals when they don't know the problem, they don't know the individual, they don't know the situation, and he that answereth a matter before he heareth it. Well, he'll be like this one we talked about. If I stop to think before I speak, I won't have to worry afterward about what I said before. How important it is to stop and think before. Now, verse 14, "...the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a broken spirit who can bear." Now, you can break your leg and get over that. But if your spirit is broken, friends, you are broken. And only God at a time can encourage you at that. You remember that Nehemiah, when he returned back to the people, even after they had rebuilt the walls, they hadn't heard the Word of God. The Word of God was read. And I think they saw how far they were from God. And they began to weep. And he says, weep not. This is a time of rejoicing. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Oh, how important that is. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I was sitting in the pastor's study up in Oregon, in Salem, the capital, in the study of the First Baptist Church. And I saw this little motto on the wall, and I like it. I pass this on to you. It's a proverb. Joy is the flag that is flown in the heart when the master is in residence. Joy is the flag. That is flown in the heart when the Master is in residence. When the Lord Jesus Christ becomes first choice for you, and he has top priority, then, my friend, you won't have that broken spirit that we hear so much about. And let me give you another proverb. Give God the first choice Give of your time, your effort, your thoughts, your companionships, and your money and see what happens. Have you tried it? I dare you to try. <laughs> and you'll find out what happens. Now, I must move along here. A man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. 
I hope you'll nail that one down, because we're going to have one that's in contrast to that. And this is where people find contradictions, you see, in the Bible. They feel like that they have found contradictions in the Bible. Well, <laughs> we'll see it when we get to it. A man's gift maketh room for him, and bringeth him before great men. And in chapter 25, verse 14, it reads, Whoso boasts himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. You see that there is quite a contrast here. Now, I want to move on from that because I'll be coming to that a little later on. And I personally believe that every believer has a gift. We've gone over that before, and we have now this message in print, the gifts of the Spirit. And if you want that, want to make a gift to this radio, we'd certainly like to send it to you. It's not offered, actually, at this time. But the gifts of the Spirit, oh my, how important that is for a child of God. Now I'm going to drop down to verse 21. And here we read, "...death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof." Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think of that. You can say a word to an individual, maybe more than just a word, but you can give the gospel to them, and it'll give them life. And you can say something else that would drive them from God. And that means death. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. The most potent weapon in this world today is that little tongue. There's just nothing quite as potent as that little tongue. And the book of Proverbs has a great deal to say about it. And then, of all things, notice the next one. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And I actually have laughed at this. I think the arrangement here is the Spirit of God put them right together. You know, death and life and the power of the tongue. You're going to have to propose to the girl. That's the proper way to do it. Ask her to marry you. And death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, you may wish you had <laughs> bit your tongue. It's like the old bachelor that was going with one that we call an old maid day, but that's not nice. And he had never met a woman that he wanted to marry because he thought they talked too much. But this one didn't. And he just fell in love with her. And he asked her to marry him. And she accepted. And the minute that she accepted, she started talking. She said what they're going to do, what their home would be, where they'd go. Oh, she began talking. She talked for over an hour. All of a sudden, she discovered he hadn't said anything. And so she said to him, says, why don't you say something? <laughs> he said, I've said too much already. And all he said was, will you marry me? Well, may I say we have death and life are in the power of the tongue, and whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. And I want to say that I've always thanked the Lord for mine, <laughs> It's wonderful to have a wonderful wife, and one that can put up with you, by the way. Now, in verse 24, the last verse, "...a man that hath friends must show himself friendly." That's wonderful, isn't it? You want to have friends? Well, show yourself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You know who he is? He's closer than a brother to you. That's Jesus. <laughs> he says, you are my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Now, wait just a minute. Don't you run around and start singing. Now, Jesus is a friend of mine. The minute I hear somebody singing that, I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you obeying him? He said, you're my friends. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Now, if you're not obeying him, I take it that you're not his friend. Ought not to be singing it. But he is a friend that will stick closer than a brother, for he's our Savior. He loved us enough to die for him. And he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
Lo, I'm with you always. And I'm coming someday to get you where I am. There you can be also. Friends, there's not much improvement you can make on that arrangement to have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Now, here in chapter 19, we have it like this. It says, Better is the poor that walketh in his integrity than he that is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Believe me, the Lord's forbidden us to call any man a fool, but he has really been using that word because apparently there are quite a few of them around in the human family. Verse 2, "...also that the soul be without knowledge. It's not good. And he that hasteth with his feet sinneth. The foolishness of man perverteth his way, and his heart fretteth against the Lord." Now, what he's doing here is what he's been doing actually all along in this parallelism by contrast. And here we have a contrast actually between those that are God's children and those that are not. And one is the path of truth, and the other is the path of self-will and that of the fool, if you please, and also of ignorance. Now, we've heard the old proverb today, where ignorance is bliss, is folly to be wise. Well, that is a false proverb. It's not true. I used to have several officers that seemed to pride themselves in the fact that, well, they would always speak out and say, well, that is theological, or that's biblical, and I don't know much about that. Well, I always felt like saying, and I had to bite my lip to keep from saying it, well, why in the world don't you know it? You ought to, a mature man, an officer in the church, and you are that devoid of spiritual understanding. And so here we have this distinction that is made. Here is a nice little saying that the professor sent me. No man is uneducated who knows the Bible, and no one is truly educated who is ignorant of its teaching. Now, that used to be true, but today they're far from it. I probably should say it like this. Today this is not accepted as truth. There was a day when it is. I still consider this true. I don't think a man can be truly educated who is ignorant of the Bible. And certainly Christians today ought not to be ignorant of the Bible. The thing that should characterize the child of God, therefore, is one who knows the Word of God. Now, we have here in verse 4, "...wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor." Now, the wealthy folk, materially, will always have a house full of guests. As long as the ice box is filled and the bar has plenty of bottles on it that are filled, and also there's plenty of music and entertainment and luxury that's around then they'll have plenty of guests. But the interesting thing is, God says here that the poor man is the one that the child of God should seek out. You remember that James has a great deal to say about that. And I'm afraid that today we are putting a wrong emphasis. I hear so many people say, well, you know we have a millionaire in our church. And how many preachers have told me that? I have a millionaire in my church. You might be better off without him, by the way. And you remember James in a very practical way. Now he says, here comes a man into your assembly as a gold ring in goodly apparel. There come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place." Say to the poor, stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. And may I say to you that I'm afraid today the poor man has his problems. And we sometimes wonder why there are a lot of folk that don't go to church. You can't get them into church. 
a couple were telling me they're a poor couple and not able to buy the latest. And what they have looks pretty worn. I've seen them so-called dressed up. They're telling about going to a church that has a reputation of being a very conservative, evangelical church. And you know what happened. My, they have been snubbed. It's been terrible what happened to them. May I say to you, friends, today, human nature hasn't changed down through the centuries. And I'm afraid that there's a whole lot of old nature that is showing. We used to say, you know, to a woman, your petticoat is showing. My mother used to always ask me when she went out, is my petticoat showing? My wife asked me that today. But there are a lot of folk that are stepping out and go to church move in society, that is, in their particular group, and their old nature is showing. And it shows in matters like this. God lays it on the line here, doesn't he? He says the poor is separated from his neighbor even. They find out you're a poor boy. They don't want you around. Now, verse 5, A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Now, if you drop down to verse 9 here, you'll find that you have here a statement. Well, it seems to be a repetition. It says, a false witness shall not be unpunished. Well, that's exactly like verse 5 starts out. And he that speaketh lies shall perish. What he's saying here is this, that a false witness, he's not going to escape. He'll be found out. He'll be called to account for what he said. And not only that, he's going to perish. God will see to that. Take this matter of Naboth. You remember Naboth? The false witnesses rose up against him, and he lost his vineyard. Ahab took it and thought he got by with it. He didn't get by with it. Elijah met him and said just the same way that you took Naboth, and right where his blood was shed, your blood's going to be shed. In fact, the dogs will lick it up there. And you know, Lahab says, well, that's one place I'll stay away from. <laughs> I won't be caught there, because the dogs are not going to lick my blood. Well, what happened was this, that this man went into battle, and it turned against him, and he had put Jehoshaphat out in front, as the king, and he thought he had escaped. And he was leaving the battle, and some trigger-happy soldier on the other side had one arrow left in his quiver and put it in the bow and pulled the bow. And it was a bow at a venture. That is, he didn't know what he was shooting at. But that arrow had Ahab's name on it. And that arrow started out, it just went zing. And when it did, it says, Ahab, where are you? I'm looking for you. And it found him. And my, he bled like a stuck pig, and he said to his servant, Take me out of the battle, and he was taken out. And you know where they took him? To Naboth's vineyard. He could hide there, you know. And he died. His blood ran all down over the chariot, and they washed out the chariot. The dogs came and just licked up the blood. You say, that's crude and frightful. You bet it is. But my friend, lying false witness, gossip in God's sight is really crude, and God hates it. He says that he does. What a picture that you have here in these Proverbs, by the way. Now, let me move on down. Verse 6, Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. What a picture today. You could transfer that over to politics, couldn't you? Many will entreat the favor of the prince. Have you written your congressman yet? Have you written to the governor? Some write even to the president. And they generally get an answer because these men are very clever at making sure you get an answer. You don't always get what you ask for, though. And the other thing is, the man that's giving out gifts, he'll have a friend. There'll be somebody around. What a picture that we have here. Now, I want to move on down into this chapter. And if you'll notice here, verse 7, "...all the brethren of the poor do hate him, 
how much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they're warning to him. Now, this is something that is quite true. The brethren of the poor, they do hate him. Now, not in the way that you and I think of. They just don't have much to do with him. In other words, the man that is prosperous, he looks out in his driveway and he sees one of his brothers that's near do well drive up in an old jalopy. And he says to his wife, he says, wait, let's get in the bedroom and lock the door and act like we're not even at home. Now, that's what it means to hate your brother. That is, your friends and your brethren will not have much to do with you when you're poor. Poor don't do very well in this world, by the way. We hear a great deal today about the different ones. If they get into office, they're going to help all of us poor people. But they help me out of more taxes. Every time we have an election, my taxes go up. And I don't know why that's true, but it always happens that way. And every time, somebody's going to relieve me. But nobody has yet. And you want to know something? I don't think anybody will. My feeling is today, problems have mounted so that no man can solve these problems. And any man, and I don't care who he is, that says that he can solve the problems of this world, that man, well, the Lord calls him a fool down here in Proverbs, and he told me not to do it, so I won't do it. But God calls that kind of a man that boasts like that. You know what we need? We need somebody to call us back to God. Somebody to say, look, I don't have the answer. I want to serve, and I want to serve God. And I'd love to see the problem solved, and I'll do the best I can, but let's pray about it. Let's turn to God for a change. Well, we've tried everything else today, and I think it would be well to try God. And I think it would be better to listen to Him than to listen to so much of TV today. And my feeling is that we need to hear God now. We've heard everybody else. They've all been on the talk shows. They've all had their little bit. They have passed across the stage of human events, and they've strutted and said their little say. And it hasn't been very impressive. We need today to turn to God. Now we have here, as I move on down to verse 13, "...a foolish son is the calamity of his father, and the contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. Now, remember last time he said the one who finds a wife, and that's a real wife, he finds a good thing. That is, he finds the other half of him. She's to be a helpmate. She's not to be a servant. That idea today that men have the wives to obey me. She's not to obey you. Where'd you get that idea that she's to obey you? She's to submit herself to you, of course, provided you're the right kind of a man. And if you're not, I don't think God has asked her to submit herself. The only instructions I find about submitting is in a Christian home, to a Christian husband who loves his wife just like Christ loves the church. And when you've got that kind of a husband and lady, you can submit yourself to him. But until you get that kind of a man, I don't think God's asked you to. I hope I'm not starting something, but somebody needs to say this today. And then, may I say to you that we need to see this. This one almost makes you laugh. Well, it's tragic, though. Think of the poor husband that's got a foolish son, and then he's got a wife that she's contentious. And you can imagine what kind of a home that he lives in. And I'm not sure but what that foolish son and that contentious wife or somehow or another related here. But it's wonderful when you find the right kind of a wife, by the way. Now we are told here, houses and riches are the inheritance of fathers, and a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, if you get a good wife, you got her from the Lord, and you ought to thank the Lord for her, by the way. Have you ever done that? Thank the Lord for, if you've got a good wife, man, you ought to thank God for her, because he's the one 
And young man, this ought to tell you something. You want a good wife? Then the one who gives away good wife is not the father. Many a father is glad to get rid of the daughter, by the way. But our heavenly father today, he has a lot of good wives to give away. And all you got to do is keep in touch with him and he'll lead you to the right one. He wants to give you the right kind of a wife. This is quite practical, don't you think, that he's given us here. Then verse 18, chasten thy son while there is hope and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Now, start young in your discipline. Don't wait too late. You can wait too late. A man told me that was saved late in life. He said, you know, my wife and I, we just got saved recently. And we're thanking God for it, but said we lost our children because we sure live like the devil. And we see that in our children today. And they waited too late, you see. You're to start young. And don't mind paddling little Willie if he cries, because he's already told us you won't kill him. But he is going to say something later on about the father that is to be very careful in the way that he deals with his child. It's pretty important that he handle the boy in the right way, you know, that he not be brutal in his dealings with the boy. We're going to come to one of those later on. I think probably we... Well, let me look back here at verse 18. Chasten thy son while there is hope, but set not thy soul upon slaying him. Now, that is a translation that many feel is better than the one that we have. Now, don't mind punishing him. Don't mind disciplining him. But... What he's saying here, a brutal punishment is not to be permitted. The fact of the matter is that even the law could step in like that today, and the law ought to. And God, for Christians, has warned them about that. He says to children, obey your parents, over in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, verse 1. And then he says in verse 4, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, and don't wade into them when you're angry and they know you're angry and you're just venting your hatred and you're probably punishing a little too hard. In fact, you could be brutal. The thing you're to do is to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the thing that is important. Now, verse 21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Now, man comes up with many explanations, many solutions, but God is the only one that can give you the right kind of advice. Now, verse 22, the charm of a man is his kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. That is a strange one, is it not? You see, the charm of a man is his kindness. How many folk do you know like that? They're kind, generous, lovely folk. And now we're back with the poor man, this poor relative, you know, that came for dinner and stayed for a couple of years with you. Well, it's better to have him than to have a liar. Then in verse 23, the fear of Jehovah tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall rest satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Now, this idea that you're to fear God, and that means you're to cringe, and that you are to be in dread all the time, and you're to move like that. Well, may I say that this proverb makes it very clear that real fear of God, it means that now you can rest satisfied. To fear God means that You recognize him. You've looked to him. You've accepted him. You want to follow him. Now you can rest satisfied. That's what real fear of God is, and that is something we need to know. Now, here is one that is humorous. Verse 24, A slothful man beareth his hand in the dish, and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. 
And that means a man can be so lazy that he can put his hand down in the dish to eat, and he's too lazy to put the food up to his mouth. My friend, when you get to a place like that, you're lazy. There's no question about that. Judgments are prepared for scorners and stripes for the back of fools. Verse 29, judgment is coming. That is something that is quite obvious. The pleasures of sin are but for a season, but the wages of sin are for eternity. 